Hello, hello, listeners to the Third Way podcast. I remain fascinated by the political climate that we we are in these days, and politics is a, a long passion for me. I think I started being aware of politics and the, the you know the structure of government and campaigns and all that when I was probably six or seven years old. And for many years, it was more of an obsession than anything. I was very like fixated on politics and very immersed, as many of you know, in right-wing conservative conservatism, which I believe right-wing conservatism is actually dead. And there's a new thing that's emerged that's something different. But um, so, you know, in that discovery of like, like, like elevating consciousness, having a lot more social consciousness, my, my political views I don't know that they've shifted, but they've certainly evolved and they've evolved to much more of a third way. So I'm joined today by a dear, dear friend of mine, someone I've known for many years, uh, Don Ryman. Don is a a mentor and a friend. Um, He's one of these people that if he had a flat tire in Wyoming, I would drive there and change it for him from Texas. (laughs) Uh, Don lives in the Boise area and is the founder of Echelon, the Echelon Group. Um, which is a financial advisory firm uh, that specializes in business retirement plans. But we're not talking about financial advisory or business retirement or any of that. We're talking with Don about something he calls the rational majority. So welcome, Don. Hey, Justin. Great to be with you. I yeah, uh, I, I got to ditto something there when you say okay. mentor is one of my beliefs around this is uh, people that are leaders are challenged uh, by others and challenge others. And I think we'll be talking about that some today. And, and you've certainly uh, done that for me and helped uh, me grow too. Awesome. Yeah. And, you know, this is one of those things we could do a whole episode on our journey. And we often joke about this, our parallel lives um, in so many ways. And we arrived at the same conclusion on a lot of things, not through through uh, even collaboration or collusion. We just, you know, we talk two or three times a year and we realize that we're all, we're both working on the same thing. And it reminds me of, I've often used this quote, but Meister Eichert, the German mystic said, all mystics speak the same language. Um, and so um, you and I have had a, a long fascination too. And we've talked about this over the years about what has happened to, you know, the political uh, discourse, what's happened to civility in politics, what's happened to um, effective government, if, if you will. And so you had came up with this term of um, irrational majority, which I think is fascinating. It's a kind of a play on, ironically, on Jerry Falwell's moral majority back in the day. Was But but the idea here, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that, that there is a, essentially, I'll put, I'll put it in my words, that the rational majority is the largest underrepresented population in the United States. That's so correct. I, yeah. So talk about that a little bit before we get into the questions. What, how do how do we get there? Why is why are you curious about that? Why does that matter to you? Well, it's when when as I'm out and about and the the people that I interact with daily, and it's a wide diverse group of people because of my many different interests and and. I don't know of anybody that consciously supports violence or radical extremism, 
but we're sucked into it. And so I think there's this large group of people that have kind of abdicated uh, leadership to a very vocal minority. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's something that it, it didn't seem rational to me. And that's how I came up with it, is that there's this majority of the population that truly is rational, rational and reasonable, but they're being drowned out by the the volume of the uh, and vocalness of the extremists. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting too, is that government ultimately is a tool. And, and it's interesting because for years, the government was used to, as a tool for the, you know, the, the, the populations with the largest set of needs, for example. I mean, and so the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is an example of that, or women's right to vote. These are large populations where the government was saying, okay, we, we need to make some policy changes and some changes to the structure of things, systemic changes. And, 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 and then, you know, if back when Republicans and Democrats could disagree on that, on the solution, but they agreed on the problem. The problem was, you know, we need civil rights, let's say. Now what's happened, especially with the GOP, is they have taken the instrument of government, combined it with sort of weaponizing uh, scripture, and they pointed at very, very small groups. You know, I think in terms of like pointing the government and going after trans people or drag queens or any of that, any of that stuff, like using the government to point at a very small population is authoritarianism, in my opinion. It's that is. Or, or you, you know, and, and I think it's such a, it's such a, especially I still hold a lot of like what would be traditionally conservative views. And it's such a, a, a misuse of government. I'm not saying the Democrats don't have their version of it with their hodgepodge of many, many special interest groups, but it's a very, very alarming thing to me that there's a huge portion of the population that's completely okay with the government having the authority to ban books, for example, or to, you know, yeah. I got, I got two thoughts on that, Justin. Uh, One is, uh, you know, you're calling out the GOP there and, and somewhat on the the democratic side too. I personally Mm -hmm. believe that both have uh, given in to the extremism. I think the difference is, is when it's something that you belong to. So you used to belong to the GOP, that right conservativeness. Mm-hmm. And because that was a part of you, the fact that you're seeing it changing, you are so aware of how major a change and the, and it's disorienting and disturbing uh, to see that happen. So you're more aware of that because you were part of it. I'm guessing there's people on the Democratic side that if that was their home and what right. they were steeped in, they would feel that they're just as, uh, you know, off track too. And then the uh, the other thing that, that you brought up is I find it fascinating. And obviously I live in Idaho and have all my life as I've watched what's happened with the politics here. And there's it's fascinating to me that you have a group of people that are so bent on saying you, the government at any level has no right to tell me what to do. And, and I have my, I have my rights and I can do these things. Yet those same people are trying to legislate to everyone else 
what they right. should do to agree with them. And we mm -hmm. see it here that Idaho doesn't want federal intervention, but our Idaho legislature is trying to tell counties and cities how to operate and tell individuals how what right. they can do in their life and and what they can read and check out of the library. Yeah, it's it's interesting too. Again, the cognitive dissonance here of this is that I believe these are correct statistics that the top ten recipients states that are recipients of federal aid nine out of ten are red states. So you hear this thing of like the government's too big and the government's you know you know you know everybody's on, wants a handout and blah 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 blah. blah. Well, okay. You live in Nebraska, which I think is number one on the list, you know, of 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 that receives federal aid of some sort. Um, and I also think too, it's interesting that 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 I'm not a Democrat. I've I've been a registered independent since 2006. I think Biden was the first Democrat I ever voted for for president. Um, the prior year, I voted for Gary Johnson or prior election over. The two I thought were the worst options you could ever run for president and Trump and Clinton. But I do see a lot more moderation in the Democratic Party. You know, there's a lot more room in the Democratic Party for like centrists. Um, I mean, hell, Biden's a centrist in a lot of ways. He's not like he's some rock ribbed socialist, you know, like, you know, Bernie Sanders or something. Um, what I think is interesting is the extremism on the left tends to be very localized. It's very much around like 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 very localized issues, um, and so you see, for example, the uh, rampant crime rate in Portland and San Francisco in particular, and open air drug markets and things like that. Those are Democrat policies that are failing in the process, and they may be well intentioned, but they don't work. And I, I, I pointed this out. This is why Democrats lose elections. Stuff like this is that they they make these just. Yes, sure. Crime is definitely a correlation of socioeconomic issues related to crime. That's true. It's not just all like people are bad people. And this goes back to the rational majority. And if, if you know, REI, which is a very progressive company, is pulling out of downtown Portland because they're tired of the vandalism, you know, that and, and, the, and, the, and whatnot. So anyway, we're off to a great start here. So let me go ahead and dive into the first question, which is, uh, what are the causal roots of extremism in the U.S.? When you look at this shift that's happened towards extremism, as you said, why? Why did it happen? Well, I, I, I studied that for a while because I, I kept trying to dig down to say, okay, this is happening, and then okay, but why? And on down, and I think the bottom line root thing is fear. Uh, there's a situation where fear of change and not being uh, having what we're entitled to and 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 uh, fear of safety and a lot of things. So the underlying root cause of a lot of this stuff is fear. And, and the, probably the biggest of all that is not belonging, because over the last couple of generations, we've moved from more of a community awareness to a self-awareness. And community is a driving force that has motivated people to make small self-sacrifices that benefit the whole. And if everybody's willing to make some small sacrifices, 
the group overall is much better off than if everybody's operating what's right and best for me. And mm -hmm. so this lack of fear of not belonging. And I, I mean, I even had to dress it down to uh, some things as I was getting ready to have this discussion with you that, oh, I'm not sure I want to say that because if somebody hears that, what are they going to think of me, even though it's what I you know, strongly believe and, and think needs to be said and heard. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think you're right about fear. And I think, um, I, I, I think there's two main roots on my view. And that I would say these are sort of the field, the, the, these are the seeds of the field of fear, the fertile field of fear that has been in place for a long time. I mean, this is not, you know, human fear about change is, you know, ancient, but there's two in particular in, that I think have driven um, a lot of extremism. And one is, the first one is the influence of Christian nationalism. I don't think people realize how much influence this idea of what I call worshiping white Jesus has this idea that the United States, and this is what Manifest Destiny was, it was God's will to go, you know, commit genocide against the indigenous people. And it was God's will that slavery would exist. That was Christian nationalism goes back, clear back to the first pilgrims. You know, they came here not for the, for religious liberty. They created here to create uh, states or, or communities where they were completely run by religious doctrine. And that's a form of Christian nationalism that still is in today. The difference is, is that Christian, Christian nationalism is, is now is, is really synonymous with white evangelicalism. And so there's this, the, the, there's this pervasive idea that we need to change legislation to match the Bible. And I often point out that when people talk about when, when, especially people on the far right, religious right, or, or whatever you want to call that group of people, is that when they talk about legislation and they quote the Bible, they never quote Jesus. Yeah. They quote Paul or Leviticus or something. They can't quote Jesus because what Jesus said is in a direct, direct opposite of what they're promoting um, with their ideas and through this legislative process. And so I think that's way, and we could get into that way, way more. And I, you know, I've talked about it at length. I think the other one is a intentional on both sides, far left, far right, an intentional mistelling of American history is that, you know, on, this is the greatest country on earth. And, you know, we got to go back to the way things were, you know, got to go back. You hear that language a lot. And, um, and yet you go through and learn about just the basic um, basic knowledge of American history is really steeped in white supremacy when you read it when you read it through that lens. It's that that and that that the things that happened to slaves or indigenous people or women or, or whomever these these groups that were oppressed, they happened because it was part of just what had to happen. That and there's a bunch of that. I could go on and on about the miss, like the, the Civil War to, um, you know, uh, the U.S. intervention in government elections. You know, for either it be Iran or Nicaragua or Guatemala over the years, we could go on and on about that, or the misuse of the government when it comes to surveillance and everything. But the far left does it too, is that they present in their form of education that 
America is a, a you know, a, a terrible place and it's full of injustice and, you know, gun violence is rampant. And, you know, there's this sort of painting of, of things that, that are sort of red meat to the extreme edges, but the, neither of those are an accurate portrayal of America. You know, we're the, we are the most diverse country on earth and we have problems because that's normal. And we have things we need to fix, which is why we need a rational majority to fix those problems. So yeah, I, I think well, those are some of the roots. Yeah. And, and what I would say that, uh, that kind of the attitude of acceptance that started out as a positive thing, uh, there's a, but there's a clarity between acceptance. So like acceptance of differences in racial and gender and, and uh, wanting a safe environment and, and things like that versus acceptance of lying and corruption and greed and disrespect. Right. And, and I think that's one of the things that's where the rational majority needs to step up and say, wait a minute. Yes, I understand that women are intelligent and have a right to the same rights as men do, that it, it shouldn't matter what color my skin is. So we need to be more accepting. And, and even in, I mean, I'm getting quite a bit older now, but, but in my lifetime, I've watched huge gains in our citizenship and our uh, country in those areas. I mean, we've made mm -hmm. huge progress in those things, right. but, but we've also, uh, I, re I remember when I was younger that you heard stories about how other, some Middle East and other countries were so horrible because of the greed and theft and, mm -hmm. and, and the way things were done. And yet in our country now, we become totally accepting of lying, corruption, greed, and disrespect among our leaders. Yeah. And, and that's where, uh, part when i say well what's the causal problem is that this this whole movement of acceptance uh, we we've got there's a, a line of distinction between what you should accept and what you shouldn't and so right. i think that plays to that and and the idea of because some of the movements and extremists out there is that uh the 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 white majority has been is being maligned somehow is laughable i mean there you know there's no place on earth that that uh, uh, as a white male individual that i've had more opportunity than than anybody else that's right yeah and it's this inability and again i think that this goes back to a type of consciousness we can call it social consciousness and 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 i refer to it as old white guy syndrome sometimes which is where somebody has it's usually an older white guy has strong opinions about something they cannot experience like abortion or, uh, you know, the things that, uh, or, or, or racial discrimination. So the things they cannot experience or have not experienced. Um, and it's the, it's this, this, I think it's also this, uh, degradation of expertise too, that I, you know, I, I looked it up on the internet, so it must be true, you know, right. uh, and that experts are in the, you know, part of big, big something the deep state or whatever and i so i think that's i think those are all like interesting factors there's something you also said that i think kind of ties into this next question is that there's a significant like we don't i'll put it this way there's things that we removed out of the education system in the 80s for example we don't teach philosophy as core curriculum anymore philosophy is learning how to think how to have a critical mind. We don't do that anymore. If you're, if you take philosophy, it's either an elective or you're in a private school. We don't teach comparative religion anymore. 
Um, we don't teach, um, we don't teach deep knowledge of the constitution anymore. Um, it's all standardized testing and, you know, how many amendments and, you know, what year and, you know, shit that nobody cares about ultimately. And so now we have, we have, we have put the onus on, and this goes to some level of economic privilege that, that you, if you really want to get educated, like really educated, you're not going to be able to do it within the traditional public school system structure, which is really sad. Um, in my opinion. And I think it goes back to what I was saying about the misteaching or the intentional misteaching of history that, that, that happens at an institutional level. And you see it where people are opposed to, and for the most, to me, the most like cognitive dissonance reasons of against uh, critical race theory, as an example, it's like, they don't want that taught in school because it's, it twists history, you know, well, that's a, what a weird take, <laughs> you know, about that yeah. issue. So. Well, I, I have to say there, like one of the things that comes up, like uh, uh, they can't talk about Martin Luther King anymore. And I was alive during that time. and remember as a kid watching the news and, and then learning about the other things in our history uh, right. about the country. I don't think it harmed me. I, I think it made me more aware of issues out there. And, and I look at it as a positive because this is where we were and right. this is what we've recognized. And this is where we are now. It's, it's like, we're getting better. And, and yes. as you know, I'm a big proponent of inter- incremental improvement. So. Right. And I, I would sum- summarize all of this maybe is that we have lost the social skill of critical thinking. I agree with you on that. And and I got to address, I got to interrupt. I got to address two things. Cause the other thing you said is you, you kind of took about education and public education. I, I don't, think because that's one of the extremist things out there right now is that public education sucks and we got to go a different way and and i'm going to disagree with that is because the the public education system is based on that everybody has access to it and in reality the private education not everybody does and there's a lot of studies that show that the higher social economic levels have access to the private education that the masses don't. So I, I think, and, and one of the underlying principles, what I said uh, kind of goes back to what I said about acceptance and everything else. There's a balance in life and I don't care what it is, is acceptance in uh, is good to a degree, but not to an extreme. Okay. And so in education, there's gotta be a balance there. Uh, so I, 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 I think that uh uh, and and when you look at it, some uh, I think you have to look at some of the underlying things there on that um, extremism. With the, what's what's the primary funding mechanism for some of that? That public school is bad. Hmm, could it possibly be uh, organizations that they're in the private schooling business or the charter school business? So yeah. you got to yeah. stop and and dig deeper. Okay, so yes. uh, and, and what, then, just to and, clarify and, there, there, Don, what I'm saying is it's not that. Public education. I mean, my my both my 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 stepson Andre goes to a public school and it's a very well run school, but they're they don't teach certain things there anymore. So you're going to have to do that for your kid. You're going to have to right. teach them certain things like critical thinking or comparative religion or um, studying of the Stoics or you know you know the the principles of Buddhism or whatever. Like these right. things that are 
that are really good to know the stuff that Thomas Jefferson studied as an example, you're not going to get that kind of curriculum in most public schools. So that's right. just, that's but, the but, new one. But I think there's a, also, there could be a balance there to that because I don't, I can't as part of the rational majority expect everybody else to do things, everything for me. And -hmm. I think there's a parental responsibility that if I have beliefs and I know what works for me, that I need to take responsibility and say, okay, the general education, the basics of, of knowledge that can be taught that are beneficial to everyone. Now, when it comes to my personal experience, I think there's an obligation for me to teach my children and those people I'm around influence. And that's part of where I think we, the, the rational majority needs to step it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. The other thing that goes with this, because you, you touched on this, is I'm going to say that there's a, a, that a, the corporate commercial corruption that's out there using um, uh, media mind manipulation is yeah. huge. Mm-hmm. And people aren't aware of how they're being manipulated. And I, I watch very little TV, uh, have, have for years. Uh, I, I have gotten into using like Netflix and Prime Video. And what's fascinating to me is just recently I was watching a, a series on Prime and all of a sudden now there's commercials on Prime for when you're watching a, a, a series there now. And so I had something I hadn't seen for years. I'm looking at the the commercials and I'm going to say the the number one commercial I saw was for pharmacy for prescription drugs. Okay. And, and not just one, but a whole different series of them telling people, if you're experiencing this, you got to have this. Now, this is my biggest, probably glaring example that mind manipulation and is work is that why would a company spend millions and billions of dollars advertising something to you that you can't go buy? You have to go to a medical professional and convince them to write a prescription for you for it. What, what else out there says, Hey, this mind manipulation works. Yes. Well, I mean, Edwin Bartel was the, was Freud's nephew and he's considered the godfather of propaganda. So they, you know, the, the, the techniques, his techniques were adopted by Joseph Goebbels in Nazi Germany. They were adopted by Madison Avenue, the show Mad Men. It's the same techniques. It's all gaslighting to create a false reality that of comparison. That's what it is. It's comparing. I don't have this. I'm, you know, as, as I jokingly say, it's like, you know, beer commercials are essentially, if you don't drink our beer, you're not going to have any friends. Right. You know, that's, that's the underlying message. So Anyway, well, let's, so we're starting to lean into something here that is the second question, which is, so pick one, I'll pick one, you pick, you pick one, I pick one, one problem or issue that the rational majority once addressed, they wanted addressed, and how would you go about addressing it? Well, I, I think you got to stop and look at the, the, the power of passion and persuasion okay and that's what uh the extremists are playing on and and if you stop and think about it throughout history extremism has always been here and 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 what could be people be labeled as extremists can actually be very positive because they're just ahead of their time and I'm, I, I can pick out some names. If you want to look at Martin Luther from the, the breaking out of oppression 
oppressive religion. And then you go to Gandhi from, uh, you know, uh, military and country oppression of different societies. And then you got Martin Luther King for racial. And then, and even an odd one, I think is Aaron Brockovich as, uh, you know, corporate uh, uh, sickening people. And I don't agree with everything that Aaron Brockovich has done or says or do, but she was a leader. And, and what I see the difference in there, those were people that used the power of passion and persuasion for awareness and positive ways versus mm-hmm. uh, when you look at the negative side, when violence is used in extremism to there, there's a difference. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the difference is one is uh, trying to protect people. And the other one is victimizing people. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. You wonder, I mean, you get some of that, the, 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 the social justice movements in this country are pretty fascinating, you know, being, being, you know, um, in a partnership with a, a feminist uh, and a Latina has opened my eyes to a lot of that of the of the passion um, and the the principles behind some of these changes. And so you may disagree with their may disagree with some social movement, social justice movements ideas or their methodologies. Um, but I think that if we had more people doing what you said we would see like new leaders emerge um it's it was my i i have this talk i give called the art of unfinishing and i talk about david hawkins's map of consciousness and the middle is courage and when i look at modern leaders i see so few of them above the courage line there there's a lot of smart leaders there's lots of driven leaders there's lots of people that are doing really you know interesting things but very few that are doing stuff that actually requires that deep, almost spiritual courage. And I think that dovetails with what you're saying. Um, I, I would look at, you know, the rational majority, I would say they want problems solved. That's what they want as a, as a platform is that we are going to solve real problems. And so if I was to pick the, I mean, there's so many we could choose from, we could, we could talk about gun violence in schools or, but I think the one that is the most pervasive is the um, is our, our, our the proverbial war on drugs and that we have a a mental health crisis that is exacerbated by the media in a lot of ways because it creates a sort of false reality which also then creates cognitive dissonance which is the definition one of the definitions of mental illness and then we have the access to substances, that we can abuse in order to try to feel different. And so if we were to, we were look at this, like uh, I think of the, the effort to, once it got rolling, the effort to how we were going to deal with COVID and, and fast tracking the vaccination and all that, just as in a modern example of like public policy and a social and a healthcare crisis. And, you know, when the government decides to do something, they're not necessarily good at it, but they do it, they get it done. And imagine if we had a true task force, bipartisan support, you know, driven by the rational majority to solve or at least reduce mental health and addiction issues in this country, what it would do to society. It would reduce crime. It would reduce violence. It would increase education. 
It would, um, it would, there were so many things that stem from mental health and addiction that we don't deal with. We just keep, we, it's just a big endless loop of the same thing without any intervention. And then both sides bloviating about the problem and not actually doing anything about it. Well, I think it, it, uh, I, I can't, couldn't agree with you more on that. And it's one of the things that, that I think that needs to, to be changed and uh, that people need to stop just looking at themselves and be more aware of others. And one of the big challenges with uh, social media now, it doesn't matter what your opinion is, you can find things out there to support your belief and opinion, whether it's true or not. And, yes. and nobody's willing to look at it. And I think the answer to that is, uh, and I, it's one of those things like back when you asked me to write the book I wrote was that we, we, mm -hmm. we take things for granted that we do and don't realize that you're doing something different. And I had a situation with an organization and somebody mentioned to me, well, why are you taking this as a victim and, and want to be mad and attack that? Why don't you step back? and look at what their objectives are. And because I believe that people are inherently good. And when people are doing something, they're, they're doing it for a reason. So rather than just getting mad and saying and being righteous and no, that's so wrong. If, if our, if our people in the rational majority, I think needs to do this more is step back and look, you know, what, what outcome are they trying to get? Because one of the things in our political environment, there's a lot of outcomes that I think are very common between both sides of the political aisle. But because now this thing of belonging and fear of not belonging, I won't step up and support something that the other side's doing because right. then I lose this community that I have on this side when reality, if both sides would step back and say, hey, we got a difference of opinion on how to do things, but this is a common good, right. something that needs to happen. So where can we compromise? And that's the ugly word nowadays yeah. is compromises is where can we compromise? To, hey, I'll give a little on this side if you give a little on your side so that we can get the outcome that we both think is a positive outcome. Right. And you see this sort of yin and yang that's part of the American has been part of American kind of democracy is, you know, somebody pushing on the gas pedal and somebody pushing on the brake. And, you know, that, that, that tension actually is created, you know, it's, it's there by design. I mean, we don't, the two party system is emerged from almost intentionally saying, okay, we are going to get things done by working with people we might disagree with. What's happened is the sort of balkanization of stuff is that I'm in my group and I don't know anybody out of my group. And that's why it, I've always said, I said, I told Logan and Caden this when they were younger. I said, if you ever wake up and you find yourself around people that look like you and talk like you and think like you, you're either in a cult or you work for a major corporation. <laughs> so this, this idea to go out and go talk to people. And I, you know, I live in Austin, Texas, super blue. As McConaughey says, it's the blueberry and the bowl of the, the oatmeal bowl of Texas. And all the, technically though, all of the major populations in Texas uh, sit, uh, centers are blue, but anyway, um, and I still, I hear people that they, you know, they want to talk about MAGA people and hey, hell, I'll have a good discussion about MAGA people, but they don't know any of them. They're just watching it online. I was like, do you know anybody that's MAGA or, or Trumpy or whatever? Oh, no. I'm like, well, then how, 
you know, and they go the other way too. It's like, I think of my, my uncle Don, who's a really interesting guy. He's an older, you know, he's in his, I think in his late sixties, early seventies. Um, and, and, but he's had a lot of exposure to the outside world. So he's not just in the bubble of the ranch. He's a rancher. He's not just in the bubble. So like there was a time when he would do, um, site visits to whole foods, you know, in San Francisco and, you know, and, uh, and so, you know, he's talking to rich gay couples, you know, or, or, in, and then his, his, his daughter-in-law is, um, Spanish, like she's from Spain. And so they've been exposed to more of non, you know, traditional, you know, non of Latin culture, not just white culture. And so he's got this view that, what happens is, is it reminds me of Mark Twain's quote, the, the only cure for narrowness is travel. Well, the only cure for this balkanization is to go out and try to get to know people that think different than you or have different experiences than you. Like if you, if you're like pro, you know, pro, we should ban all drag queens. Have you actually talked to a drag queen? Have you done that? I guarantee you 99% of them have not. Yeah. So Anyway, well, okay. Last question, then we'll uh, is is this is I think it's important, and you and I have this shared value of optimism or hopefulness. And so the question here is, as it relates to politics and the social landscape, what are you hopeful about for the future? Well, I think that people, I, I believe, I don't think are inherently good. Uh, but the majority of people don't have the courage or confidence to step up and lead because there's our sacrifices go with that. And there's this, you know, uh, idea that am, am I right? Is, is it just me or what I have to say doesn't matter. And so I think that by taking that position, the, the rational majority out there has abdicated leadership to the extremists. And so I think the answer is that we have to face that fear of not belonging and have confidence mm-hmm. and courage. And, and I think that means we to step up kind of fascinating when I talk to very intelligent people at, at, or the second part of that is we need to have people step up and start being leaders and we need to hold our leaders accountable because that's mm-hmm. something from greed, corruption, um, you know, everything you can imagine, disrespect is nobody's being held accountable at the leadership level anymore. Right. And, and so I think by, by doing that, um, it, 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 there's a challenge. I find it fascinating when I talk to these intelligent people that say, oh, this this is a horrible person. I can't stand him, but I like some of the decisions he makes. And I'm going, I mean, there there was positive things about Mussolini and Hitler too. Yes. But you can't, you can't take one yeah. part and say, oh, I'm going to accept all this non-acceptable behavior because he has made some decisions. Because if we would oust those type of people and hold our leaders accountable, there are other people that would make similar decisions that would step up and take their place. Okay. And so I think that's probably the biggest thing is, is holding ourselves accountable to lead and, and then those that we choose to lead is holding them accountable and then we don't. Uh, the, the, this position we find ourselves in where voting uh, 
for something we don't really want to vote for because it's a negative vote against the other side. And I, I think it's dis- I think it's disconcerting that when you look at our two leading uh, candidates for president of the United States for the next term are the oldest in history there. Yeah. I think that's wrong. Yes. Yeah. It's wow. Yeah. There's another episode all to itself, but um, yeah. Interesting. I like those are as always, you make me think. Um, I think that the thing I'm most hopeful about is the, the rise of conscious business. You know, there's a, I mean, you take, take every like major social justice issue in the last 10 to 15 years, it's been led by the, by not by the government. It's been led by businesses, businesses deciding uh, to be more, not through regulation, but through whatever their motivation is deciding to do the right thing when it comes to the environment or, or, or workers' rights or, um, and, 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 and I had this observation the, the other day that, you know, companies that have uh, flexible, flexible work schedule, you know, the um, remote work friendly, and they have um, really like real DEI programs, not just like, you know, uh, shiny press releases, but real DEI programs and real like social impact initiatives, they're going to attract this whole entire next generation of, 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 of people, of, of, of talent. Um, if you don't have those things, you're not, in, in my opinion, over time, you're, you're going to get a, that basically you're going to get a type of employee that is driven by money and, and motivated by money and, and and therefore will only make safe decisions, which means nothing gets invented. So I'm very hopeful about that. I'm hopeful about um, the, I'm hopeful about millennials and Zoomers and leadership positions. Um, I see many of them when we go out and look at the landscape of leaders that are emerging, whether they business leaders or elected leaders or uh, nonprofit leaders. They are there's some amazing people out there. Um, that are that are doing doing things as young as like 16 years old out doing the things that you mentioned about passion and what was the other p passion and what purpose pa- passion and purpose again you might disagree with them but they're doing things with passion and purpose and I, I find that to be very hopeful because I think there's this more much more of this um, active involvement Active involvement of the citizenry leads to the accountability that you're referring to. Delegating your, your rights as a citizen to an elected official is just a good way to invite the you know tyrant's boot. Um, and especially if you agree with them, but you think they're a horrible person, which is, yeah. like, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. Um, so, well, we didn't solve all the world's problems, but we solved some of them. So... Yeah. And we had a great conversation. So thank you so much for your thoughtfulness and the way you articulate your ideas. And uh, I have work to do today, but now I'm going to be thinking about this conversation the rest of the day. So thanks a lot. <laughs> thanks, Justin. So. And I appreciate the fact that uh, you hold me accountable at times and challenge me to to look at what's capable out there instead of just sitting back and being complacent. So I, I appreciate yeah, you and all you stand for. I appreciate you. All right. All right. Talk to you later.